This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 14th, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. Governments from around the world have sent representatives to Bali to plot a roadmap for cutting global carbon dioxide emissions and replace the Kyoto Protocol. The details of that roadmap have yet to come into focus. Ronald Bailey, science correspondent for Reason Magazine and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, is in Bali and spoke with me about the proceedings there. The U.N. Secretary General suggests that the United States has essentially succeeded in removing specific guidelines for reduction of emissions from the drafts associated with this round of talks. Could you comment on that? Well, it's been a long-term goal of the United States is the, is these negotiations. What they're afraid of is that if you put in specific numbers, in this particular case, they were thinking the numbers are 25 to 40 percent reduction below what the industrialized countries emitted in greenhouse gases in 1990. They would cut that to, uh, by that amount below. Uh, they would cut that by that amount by 2020. The United States is afraid they would freeze it into the next two years of negotiations that are scheduled to end in Copenhagen in 2009. And basically, the delegation came here with the notion, well, we don't want to prejudge whatever before uh, we come to Copenhagen. What we're going to do is negotiate those levels. We're not going to decide that those levels are what we're going for. Wednesday, Kevin Rudd, the new prime minister of Australia, presented Kyoto Protocol ratification papers. That leaves the United States now as the only major industrialized nation not to have ratified the protocol. Does that change this discussion now and in the immediate future? Uh, I don't really think it changes it as much as most people uh, were pretending it does. It's certainly the case that when Prime Minister Rudd arrived here in Bali, he received a hero's welcome with the idea of putting a little bit of, if you will, publicity and pressure on the United States uh, to go ahead and do something uh, dramatic with the uh, negotiations. But my understanding is that in the back channels that the Australian government has now looked at this and they're going, wait a minute, this would cost us a lot of money. And so uh, I'm hearing that the Australians also do not want to agree to any specific number for cuts in the future. So there's less to it than meets the eye, I think. China and India are both seeking considerable leeway in emissions caps given the rates of economic growth. How much currency does that argument have, given that China is now producing more CO2 than the U.S.? Well, uh, on the one hand, uh, to the degree that, that, that uh, emissions are causing a problem, a ton of CO2 emitted anywhere causes a problem everywhere, as everyone constantly says, and the United States says that all the time, the delegation does uh, here in Bali. On, on the other hand, the Chinese say, well, if there is a problem, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, the rich countries, United States and Europe specifically, uh, have emitted over the last two centuries a lot of carbon dioxide as they got rich, leaving less space, if you will, in the atmosphere for the rest of us to get rich to, to emit carbon dioxide. So their argument is historically the United States has to take some responsibility for having done that. And then on the third hand, of course, the question is, well, that may be the case, but the fact that the West got rich also has redounded to the credit of the poorest countries in the world. After all, the United States, Europe, Japan, and so forth have invented antibiotics, cars, railroads, airplanes, and so forth. So everybody's gotten a benefit, so we should have a cost-benefit analysis of this. So it's quite a contentious debate here. 
Now, you noted in a recent dispatch to uh, Reason Magazine that the Greenhouse Development Rights Framework has proposed a climate consumption luxury tax that would be applied to uh, most developed countries. They haven't seemed to have gone into any detail on it, but what is that plan as you understand it, and what do you think the implications are? Well, this particular plan, the idea again is what we're talking about with the Chinese situation is that there is a historical responsibility on the part of the rich because uh, they've emitted all this carbon dioxide in order to get rich to, to uh, basically pay for, if you will, the development of the poorest countries uh, on the planet. And the idea behind this is, and they've come up with a benchmark which you could discuss, and though I have to say, I did hear the Pakistani ambassador in a press conference endorsed this number, they come up with a benchmark that everybody who in the world, not just in the rich countries, but everybody in the world who, who makes over $9,000 per year should pay something like a, 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 consumption, uh, a carbon consumption luxury tax in order to provide reparations to the poorest people in the world. Uh, they suggest as a model that maybe what you would do would be um, uh, levy that at a rate, and we could go into the details, but it's a little boring. But let's say United States, every uh, American would essentially be paying the equivalent of $800 a year into a fund that would amount to about $200 uh, billion that ideally for these people ideally, would be administered by the United Nations, which would ha you know, hand out the money to poor people around the world, or poor governments, I should say, which is, of course, a real flaw, in order to um, buy new clean energy technologies or adapt their coastlines to sea level rise or, or whatever, essentially. Uh, this, of course, is a very bad idea, considering how unsuccessful foreign aid has been in the past. Um, it is, it is the case that over the last 50 years, the West has spent $2.3 trillion in foreign aid, and as far as uh, we can tell, there's been absolutely no effect on the uh, economic growth of poor countries of the world. It's been flushing money down a rat hole. So this would be more of that. If we really want to help these people, and I think we do, uh, the, the best way to do it is through trade, not aid. And one of the things that is, one analysis basically says that if you really lowered the, the world's current trade barriers, you could uh, benefit the world's poor by as much as $600 billion a year, every year from now on, which would go a long way toward helping those people adapt to whatever climate change is going to happen. You said that one positive change in, in the activist rhetoric at Bali is that it's changed somewhat in favor of a greater consideration of economic development for the world's poor. How does that play out among the activists there? Well, the, the reason I say that is I've been attending these meetings, these kinds of UN meetings, since actually the Rio Earth Summit back in 1992. And uh, there, I detected for years among many activists this notion, well, uh, if you will, a kind of... of, uh, of, of, of environmental apartheid that... Well, the rich, I mean, that the poor people simply cannot, uh, the rest, uh, the rest of the world simply cannot become as rich as we are or they'll destroy the planet. And they were, many of them seemed very happy to me to uh, leave the, pe the poor people in the developing world poor forever for the sake of the planet. And now the rhetoric seems to be a little bit different. Now, there's, it's concerning on the other side is because as, the, the, as I was talking about with this notion of greenhouse development rights, 
they're now using this as, a, as an excuse to remold the world in egalitarian directions. They hope to seize, if you will, uh, money from the rich world and, and hand it out to poor people, uh, which is, of course, the most ineffective way of actually helping people rise up from the, the poverty in which they're mired currently. The best way to do it, of course, is the usual stuff, the rule of law, uh, uh, the ending of corrupt governments, uh, the, uh, the, the creation of a climate which would actually attract investment as opposed to repel it. And those are the ways to get poor people rich, and that's the only formula that's ever worked. Do you get the sense that what Al Gore was saying to the crowd was at all at odds with what Senator Kerry was saying just the day earlier? That's a very interesting question. Uh, I... I think that Al Gore no longer has to worry about practical day-to-day politics. So I don't think he, he even thought about it. The, what, what I think surprised the audience here in Bali when Senator John Kerry from Massachusetts came and basically said, look, folks, if whatever agreement comes out of here does not include participation by the developing countries, especially the developing countries, uh, like India, China, Brazil, that are becoming wealthier as, as, they, as you know, as they, as in the next few years, uh, if they're not included, the United States Senate will not ratify any new treaty. And I think that was a bit of a surprise to the audience. They were hoping for some sort of, you know, rah-rah message, but here was a bit of practical politics as the United States uh, government, including the Democratic Party, is not going to... Um, uh, harm their their constituents economically unless they see that other people are also other people in the world are also participating in this arrangement. In other words, uh, it would be very hard for Senator Kerry to argue, well, we need to impose a some sort of carbon price on Americans, but not on Chinese, because that would mean that American manufacturing jobs would end up in China, and that's not going to happen. Ronald Bailey is a science correspondent for Reason Magazine and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You can read more on the political economy of carbon emissions at our website, cato.org.